As we continue our time of worship, would you turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 6? As we continue this worship experience, let us dig into the Word. But let me begin by saying how much I like that song. Because even though we may not necessarily see a victory in the circumstance of our lives, we know that eternally Christ is King. If that doesn't get the fire burning in your belly, I don't know what will. If we can't stand here and despite the fact that Matt spent so many days in the hospital, if we can't stand here crippled by anxiety because of the deadlines we have in our job, if we cannot stand here watching the world degrade to a place where we're going, good Lord, help us, and we can't say Christ and Him crucified because Jesus reigns, where would we be? And I mention that because this morning we are talking about the futility of life. How encouraging for you this morning to come and learn how futile life can be. And I'm sure Pastor Matt is going to bring this to your attention, but I want to just drive it home out the gate. Ecclesiastes is man's understanding of the world around him apart from God. And keeping that perspective, we know that with God we have the opposite. Amen? So let us read from Ecclesiastes chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. Hard stop, let's go home. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, how many they be? But his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial. Then I say, better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity. And its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice, and does not and does not enjoy good things do not all go to one place all a man's labor is for his mouth and yet the appetite is not satisfied for what advantage does the wise man have over the fool what advantage does he the poor man knowing how to walk before the living. What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and a striving after wind. 
Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Let us pray. God, as we come before you, as we continue our time of worship through the proclamation of your word, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the news that you have for us. That from a human perspective, life is futile. We can no more control the wind than we can our own destinies. But that we can look to you and know that through you there is purpose and through you there is life. Amen. That you came in the form of flesh and lived that sinless life for us and died on that cross for us in our stead paying the penalty that we owed you graciously took it upon yourself but that after three days you rose again that you were victorious that is the victory that we stand here before today and proclaim that through this world may be some futility in human thinking and human reasoning but through god we have victory it is in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Bruce. I'm going to take this moment and dismiss our kids to go to their classes. And as they are going that way, I'm going to ask you to stay in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 6 as we are halfway through our series today and halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you were here with us last week, you might remember we looked at the last half of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And we talked about the definition of success from Ecclesiastes 5. And how the, in the world's eyes, in the eyes of the world, the definition of success can be found in what we have. Because more wealth equals success. And by wealth I mean things, and by wealth I mean money. We looked at how being successful should be equal to being wealthy but the truth of the matter is no matter how much we have or or what we have without christ in our lives that stuff that determines worldly success it's meaningless as we've continued to see throughout this book and here are three words that I, I i want you to hold on to today it's ones that that pastor bruce has already talked about i think he actually stole my notes and, and basically just took off my entire introduction but there's three words I want you to hold on to today and there's three words I want you to hold on to every day and that is this. Jesus is life. Jesus is life. We live in a world that's trying to find the good life. They're trying to find the good life but they don't even know what it actually is or how it can be found. They look at all of the things of the world and they're, they're looking into those things thinking this is where I'm going to find it but you know what they keep coming up? They keep coming up empty. There's no meaning in those things. And I'm sure as you've seen that we hit this halfway point in Ecclesiastes, you've seen that this is the theme. This is the theme of this book. 
The whole thing is that life is not found in this world. Life is found in Jesus. Jesus is life. It all points to Jesus. As a matter of fact, this book we will end on Palm Sunday and we will have a single standalone sermon on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, and that is going to be this phrase, Jesus is life. We're going to drive that home. We're going to drive it home because we're going to focus directly on that. I I want your family. I want you. I want your friends. I want them to hear and understand that Jesus is life. This whole book of Ecclesiastes is talking about this man-centered point of view that it's all futile. But when we have a Jesus-centered point of view, we see life. We see so much more. As a matter of fact, there's lots of passages throughout Scripture that talks about Jesus being life. Think about just what Jesus said in the book of John when he uses the seven I am statements. Maybe you've heard them before, but one of them is, I am the bread of life. Another one is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. The one will really hit on Easter Sunday, I am the resurrection and the life. He continues to drive home that point, even when he says, I am the light of the world. And the reason why I I point that out, because the beginning of John says this, in him was life. And that life was the light of all men. And the other two of the seven, when he talks about being the door and the good shepherd, it's also pointing to life. If you want a really black and white statement found in 1 John 5.12, it says these words, the one who has the Son has life. And the one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Very black and white, not a lot of gray area. But the thing is, if we don't believe that, if we don't live that, if we don't hold on to that and put our hope in that, if that is not our future hope, we are living lives that are chasing the wind. That is what Ecclesiastes is about. And that, I give you that foundation. I give you that filter to look at Ecclesiastes through, but especially chapter 6, because chapter 6, as, as Pastor Bruce said, it's a deeper dive into the meaninglessness of life without Christ. That's what he's going for. That's what he's pointing at. Chapter 6, Solomon breaks down what might be considered some of life's biggest mysteries. Some of life's biggest questions. Why would God give riches without enjoyment? Why would God give us work without satisfaction? And why would God give us these questions in our minds but never provide the answer? Why, God, do you do that? And we're going to see that without Christ... This life is a dead-end street. It's chasing after the wind. It's trying to catch bubbles. Or as one commentator I read this week put it, said, it's trying to find a black cat in a dark room that doesn't have a cat in it. Like, that's it. Wraps it all up, just like that. But life with Christ. Life with Christ, it has meaning. It has purpose. It has an end goal that satisfies the soul both now and forever. So let's start off with these three different sections, starting off, first of all, with the riches without enjoyment. And that's really found in verses 1 through 6. Let's look at the first two verses here when it says, Here is a tragedy that I have observed under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing. All of his desires are for himself, but God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening 
tragedy. So he starts off with this, this tragedy. And what is that tragedy? That a person has all they, and I'm going to use this quote, need, all they need to have a good life, but for some reason or another, they don't get to enjoy the good life. Let's be honest. How many people do you know or have you known or have you even heard about that work their whole lives in order to have the good life when they retire only to get to that point and a major sickness hits them or a major sickness hits somebody in their family or something dire happens and their retirement savings are wiped out or even worse, they die. They work their whole life for this point and then they don't get to have it. That is a tragedy that he's talking about. When one of these things come up that crush us financially, they crush our strength and any dreams of the good life are shot. Well, that leads to a big heavy question and the question is is why why that's always a question that weighs heavily on humanity as he mentions there in verse one why why would god allow this to happen well solomon hinted at it back in chapter three as well as in chapter five but the basic foundation is is nobody can enjoy the gifts of god without god himself nobody can enjoy those to enjoy gifts without the giver is what we call idolatry as we already know, worshiping the temporary over the eternal will never satisfy our heart's desires. If you're on any of our social media platforms, you may have seen this quote this week from a guy by the name of Warren Wiersbe. It said this, Enjoyment without God is merely entertainment, and it doesn't satisfy. But enjoyment with God is enrichment, and it brings true joy and satisfaction. When you stop and think about that, and you read this passage... You see it play itself out. But even as you read this passage, there's something else that we see. And that's in verse 2. And it says this. It says, A stranger is going to enjoy the fruits of this person's labor. A stranger. All you work for, a stranger gets to enjoy. Why would he say that? Well, I think the implication here is this. That you've worked so hard to get to the good life, you've actually missed the good life. You've worked so hard that there's nobody to even leave your stuff to. Now, I'm going to date myself by saying this. There was a song when I was a kid by a guy by the name of Harry Chapin. Some of you guys know who that is. And the song was The Cat's in the Cradle. Now, if you're a little bit younger than me, uh, you weren't born in the mid to late 1900s. Um, you maybe understand this song from a group called Ugly Kid Joe. They redid it. But it said this, My child just arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way. There's planes to catch, but there's bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. He was taking, for I knew it, as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. I want to be just like you. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, the little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you coming home, Dad? I don't know when, but we'll get together then. How many of us remember that song? I remember the first time I heard it, it was when I was actually with my dad, of all funny things. My dad and parents were divorced. We didn't have a, a great relationship. He lived back east. I lived in Arizona. And there wasn't a lot of that. But that song goes on to say, hey, my, my son turned 10 and he got a ball glove. And, he, and, and we're going to go play catch. And I'll get together soon. We're going to do that eventually. But by the time the end of the song comes, you know what happens, right? The boy's grown up. Now he's got his own job. He's got his own son. His dad is off in the distance they want to connect and they just never do 
that is what I think this song is talking about here. It's this Ecclesiastes thing here of we're missing out. We're missing out on the now. I think really what he's saying is don't plan to live, live now. Live now in Christ, the life that you've been given. Because what we have, we can be satisfied in by the one who's provided for us. But we're always looking for that next thing. He says, take what you have now, take that life you have now, and use it for his glory, no matter how much or how little you think it is. He continues his thinking in verse 3 through 6 and takes it to a deeper, darker level, as you probably heard as Pastor Bruce reads. He says this, A man may father a hundred children and live many years. No matter how long he lives, if he's not satisfied by good things and does not even have a proper burial, I say a stillborn child is better off than he. For he, that stillborn child, comes in futility and he goes in darkness and his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than this man. And if a person lives a thousand years twice but does not experience happiness, don't both go to the same place. I mean, that's some pretty brutal language. That's some kind of in-your-face language. And he makes a very truthful point, though. And he says this, it doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter how long you live. If you don't have the ability, if you don't have the capacity to enjoy it, it's better to have never been born. It's better to have never been born. Look at the person that he's describing here. Lots of kids, long life. You know what two blessings of the people of the Old Testament were? To have lots of kids and a long life. You're considered blessed by God in that way, but there's a problem. Nobody loved him. Nobody loved this guy. That whole idea of that no proper burial is because they're glad he's finally dead. All they were excited for was the reading of the will. They wanted his stuff. You worked really, really hard, Dad. Thanks so much. Just give me it. That's where we find ourselves. This rich man, according to worldly standards, was actually very poor. He was very poor. He didn't enjoy his real riches. He didn't have any connection with his family or anybody else for that matter. So what good is it to live a long life but never really live the life you have? That's a question we have to hold on to. Maybe you remember, I'll date myself again, uh, William Wallace in the movie Braveheart came out in 1993 which is now like 30 years ago as crazy as that is but when you stop and think about it, there's a word that he says at the end and he says this he says every man dies but not every man really lives do we really live do we really live that is the question that Solomon is asking he says this dark statement to bring it around a stillborn child is better off than he if you don't really live and then listen to the description of why he says he says he that stillborn child comes in futility and he goes in darkness his name is shrouded in darkness now i don't want to talk about a stillborn child i've had friends who've had stillborn children uh christy and i have had a miscarriage That, that is a difficult time in life But back in the Old Testament, the reason why he's given this description of a stillborn child is this. A stillborn child was not given a name, so it wouldn't be mourned for very long. It it wouldn't be remembered. It wouldn't have, I'm going to say this, and it 
painful to say it now, but this is the way they thought. It wouldn't have as much meaning to the parents or the rest of the world if it didn't have a name. Because when you give something a name, it gives it a beginning. It gives it meaning. It gives it a starting point. And they said, don't give it that because we don't want that. And Solomon says it's better to have that and no beginning and none of those things. None of those things than to live without a life being lived. See, we ask the question, why would God allow a child to be brought all the way to term but not live? Solomon takes it deeper and says, why would God allow a man to have everything yet have no enjoyment in it? No life in it. He has no life as he was existing. And see, this isn't about being born or existing versus never truly existing. The question is, what do you do with your life? What do you do with your life under the sun if there is no God and nothing beyond it? Or at least you live that way. Why God? Why God would you give this person riches but no enjoyment in them? And the answer points us back again to Christ. If you have your Bibles with you, do me a favor and flip over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we see this in the New Testament. We see Paul as he's talking, talking to the church at Philippi. And Starting in verse 11, he explains this thinking of what the question that, that Solomon is asking here. He says, let me tell you about this life and what we live under the sun, starting in verse 11. He says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through Him who gives me strength, who strengthens me. You know, you know what Paul is telling us here? He, he's telling us this. The ability to enjoy life comes from within. The ability to enjoy life is not about the circumstances I find myself in, but it's about my character. And my character is coming from something more inside of me. As a matter of fact, when he uses that word content, it actually defined in the Greek as to be self-contained, adequate, or needing nothing from the outside. So Paul had something within that gave him the resources he needed to face anything he come, had come his way. That's what Philippians 4.13 is about, by the way. It's not about you being able to make a basket on the basketball court or be able to overcome on the football field as much as it is that when we are in need and when we are in want, we have what we need inside to overcome those circumstances. That is where we find ourselves. And that's something, by the way, in case you're wondering, is Jesus. Because Jesus is life. Going back to Ecclesiastes 6, one thing you can see with that stillborn baby in comparison to the man who had a long life and lots of kids, they had something in common. You know what it is? Death. Their lives both end in death. Death is a reality, and there's a futility in this life if that is all that you're living for. If you aren't going to live it for the glory of God, then why live? I know that's a sad, sickening thing to say, but that's what Solomon's basically asking us. In this section, he moves from that riches without enjoyment to the idea of work without satisfaction verse 7 says this all of a person's labor is for his stomach yet the appetite is never satisfied now this part of the passage he switches from somebody who is 
well off to the one who has to really work hard to make ends meet. So he's kind of covering the gamut of people here. He says, you have to work hard to feed your family. But even in working hard to feed your family, he asks this question. If you work hard to fill your belly, are you really satisfied for more than the time it takes to digest that food? Honestly, there's a couple reasons why we eat, right? At least I'll, I'll throw we as in being me. But there's only one thing that really matters. See, I think lots of people like to eat because they like food. I like food. I like good food because it tastes good. And I like to partake of that good food. Some people, they like to prepare that good food. I'm one of the people who likes to eat what they prepare. I enjoy a good meal. I like to consume. But in the end, there's only one reason why we really eat. You know what that is? To live. To live longer. I want to make it to tomorrow, so I need to eat today. But the question again comes around to, what good is it to add years to your life without adding life to your years? What good is it? I mean, think about the animals. They eat to live, right? Even though the cartoons show a human side of animals, that they're looking for something delicious and they have their fork and their knife out and they're they're watching something like that. The truth of the matter is for animals, they just want to eat to make it till tomorrow. They eat to exist. But guess what? We We actually had this conversation a bit this morning. We are different than the animals. We are not just created to exist. We are created for so much more. See, if you're healthy enough, you get the pleasure of working. And you get the pleasure of eating. But life doesn't only consist in those two things. Because if that were the case, we would be like the animals. We'd be no different than them. They are driven by their desire for self-preservation. And they're driven by their desire to meet their basic needs. That's not us. But why do people live like that? It's because forever they've been taught that they're some sort of animal, that they they came from some sort of evolutionary process, that they're just that. No, we were created by God on purpose for a purpose. We have to remember that. We have to live for that. There's so much more to this life than just self-preservation. He jumps into verse 8, and then he asks two questions. Those two questions are this. What advantage then does the wise person have over the fool? What advantage is there for the person who knows how to conduct himself before others? What advantage? The answer is, in this feudal world, none. There is no advantage. There is no advantage if you're just living for yourself. See, Solomon isn't saying... Don't bother with self-improvement. He's not saying that. He doesn't say, don't bother with education. Those things aren't bad unless that's the end of what your life is all about. If that is what you're all about, then you are missing it. Because those things in and of themselves will not bring that good life. We have to have something greater as our goal. Let me give you this for an example. I love technology. I'm impressed by technology. There's things that go on now that I have no idea. I have no idea what goes on with AI. I hear it, I see it, and I'm like, wow. I'm like Terminator. That's all I can think about. And and, and that was a movie I saw when I was a kid. Probably shouldn't have because it was rated R, but that's a side story. We've talked about my parents and their poor parenting abilities. But I saw that movie, and now I see it playing itself out, and I go, man, I don't get it. But if you really stop and think about the, the hundred years, even more than that, of just the revolutionary inventions that have happened. How far we have come. 
the, the crazy things that, that happen, all these technological advancements, what's their purpose? See, I, I've jokingly said outside of medicine and, and, and the medical practices that most inventions just make us more comfortable or more lazy. I mean, at one point in time, sliced bread was the standard. This is better than sliced bread. This is greater than this. This is the greatest thing since sliced bread. That was kind of our standard. I, I think we've got past that now. But but when you stop and think about what things do we have that have made things that much better, we communicate now faster than ever to people all around the world. But the thing is, do we have anything important to say? LOL, giggles, smiley face emoji. Yeah. Okay. So you get what I'm saying. And when we watch things, you realize you can watch anything in the palm of your hands now? But is there anything good out there to watch? I mean, what is the end goal of these technological advancements? Is it for our glory or is it for God's glory? And continuing that thought, you see this in verse 9. Better what the eyes see than wandering desire. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. Basically, what he's saying is better to have little and really enjoy it than to dream about much and strive your whole life for it and then end up empty-handed. Now, Solomon isn't telling us don't dream. He's saying don't have ambitions. He's not saying don't have this desire to push hard to accomplish something great in life. My kids have jumped on to watching Wonka. We watched the, 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 the newest one, uh, the one with Johnny Depp's weird. Uh, all of them are weird, but Johnny Depp's really weird. Um, but the first one with uh, Gene Wilder, the kids have really gotten into, the little kids are, are really, and now, uh, and Dolly's walking around singing the, the world of pure imagination. And it's, it's pretty cute to hear him sing it. And, and he's walking around, he's like, come with me. And I'm not going to sing it. Come with me, and you'll see this world of pure imagination. And, and he's kind of going through that. But if you remember in that movie, there, there's some great one-liners that really, unless you dive deep into it, don't make any sense. But one of the things that, that Gene Wilder says when they're licking the wallpaper that, that has the flavor on the wall, um, you guys know what wallpaper is? Uh, but um, again, dating myself. So he's licking, they're licking the wallpaper, and the, the, the question comes up, uh, there's a bit about this, the snozzleberries. And his answer back to uh, Veruca Salt was, we are the music makers. We are the dreamers who dream dreams. Most people don't have any idea why he answered that. It comes from a poem from the 1800s and kind of carried over from that. But as I look at that and as I think about that, this whole idea of dreaming and imagination, it's a great thing. But for what purpose? As a church, what do we dream of? Is it something for our desires or is it something for God's glory in his kingdom? Well, why do we do what we do? As we look at that, we have to continue to say, is it for our limited glory and our praise from men or is it the will of God? Whose will? Remember that prayer, that Lord's prayer that Jesus taught? Not my will, Lord, but yours. Do we mean that? See, there's riches in both. There's riches in my glory and there's riches in God's glory. But only one will satisfy and the other will crash and burn at the end. 
Maybe you've heard this story before, but it comes from a transcript of a U.S. naval communications of what was thought to be between two sea vessels. Voice number one says, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Voice two says, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Voice one says, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Voice two says, no, I say again, divert your course. Voice, voice one says, this is the aircraft carrier Enterprise. We are a large warship of the U.S. Navy. Divert your course now. Voice two says, I'm a lighthouse. Your call. <laughs> I tell you that for this, because we have a great delusion in our world, in our time, and really has been for all time, that the exertion of human power can change the shape of truth. The fact of the matter is that truth is a solid rock with a lighthouse sitting on it and we can either alter our course and take account of it or we can keep going until it imposes itself on us. We can insist all we like that truth should be different but there is nothing we can do to change the fact that truth is truth. Truth is truth and that's what leads us to verses 10 and 12. 10, or 10 through 12 says this. Basically, there's these questions without answers. Why would God give us all these questions without answers? So far, we've seen people traveling down this lonely street of dreams, a dead-end street where people find riches but no joy and work without any return and satisfaction. It's like Solomon's pointing out the fact that good life is not the automatic result of good living. If you devote yourself to trying to find the good life, you're going to end up miserable. But if you don't devote yourself to living out God's will, you will find the good life in the process. Solomon says there is one more type of person walking down that dead end street. That's a person that has to have all the answers in order to believe. I feel like there's so many people that are out there like that. And I'm going to tell you right now, there are questions about life that there are no answers to. In that... We can't use it to excuse and unfollow God. We can't say, well, God, you didn't answer that, so therefore I will not believe that you exist. But instead, we should drive us to have a greater faith in God. That, that we should come to the realization that we don't live by faith in explanations. We live by faith in the promises that God has made. And for those of you who struggle with that, I'll tell you, knowledge in the mind does not guarantee a healing of the heart. Just because you have the answers does not bring us closer to salvation. Healing and satisfaction come from our faith in God. In our next three verses, we're going to see five questions that we're going to go over quickly. And these are questions that many people ask. So let's take a quick look and see what they say. Whatever exists, verse 10, was given its name long ago, and it is known what mankind is. Basically, he asked this question. Why bother making decisions if what's going to be is going to be? If God is sovereign and he's going to do his thing, why do I even bother? Well, Solomon's pointing out something else we mentioned already earlier, and that is this, the giving of a name. He says, whatever exists was given its name, or not, as the case of the stillborn child, because when we give it a name, it has, once again, a starting point. It has a starting point. So if it has a starting point, in the, in the beginning, God gave names to things, they gave them a starting point. And those starting points, because God gave them, they are perfect, they are what they're supposed to be, but our world has spent many, many years trying to change 
those definitions of those things. But it's kind of like the nut lighthouse in the story. Either you're going to believe the truth or you're not. And you're either going to run into the truth or you're going to live your life according to it. Think about Genesis, light. Light is light and it is not darkness. Day. Day is day and it is not night. We are man made from earth. That's what Adam means, by the way. And we will return to earth. In that, there is a male. There is a female. And yes, I will say it. One is not the other. Sin is sin. Obedience is obedience. Truth is truth. If we try to alter any of these things, we lose touch with what we might call reality. We lose touch with reality. Unfortunately, this is where too many people live today. The fact that God has named everything and has given a truth foundation to it doesn't exclude our ability to have freedom to act. We are free to decide how we choose to live. But we are not free to change the consequences. If we choose to live in a world of substitutes and illusions, we will try and find satisfaction in those substitutes and illusions. And guess what's going to happen? The same thing that Solomon has said week after week after week. It is futile. It is chasing after the wind. It is empty. It's a mirage, like we said last week. Drinking from the sand when we finally think we've got there. If we live in the truth, though, because Jesus is life, he will set us free from the world of disillusionment. As a matter of fact, the next part of verse 10 asks the question. It says, but he is not able to contend. But he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The question is, are you going to fight God? Are you going to fight God? Are you going to go against his will? Guess what? That lighthouse is not moving. You want to challenge him? That leads to this question. Because when we come to the realization that we can't win, we instead turn the blame on God. Why is God such a mean God and not letting me do what I want? The question I would ask in return is, is why would anybody want to have their own way? Why would anybody want to have their own way just to exercise their freedom? See, I have freedom, and if I choose me, there will be consequences for it. Let me tell you, Solomon's been telling us for weeks, there's only one thing that our freedom ends up in, and that is futility. As a matter of fact, it ends up in bondage. There's no actual freedom there. Think about Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 says this, God gave them up to their freedom, their own way. And you know what the result was? Not good. It was not good. Is it okay to wrestle with God? Yes. Is it okay to question God? Yes. Is it okay to debate with Him? Absolutely. As long as it is driving you closer to Christ. As long as it is answering the questions that drive you closer to Christ. See, there's this thing called the Reformation. You've probably heard of it before. But the the driving force behind the Reformation was this phrase, always reforming according to scriptures. Always reforming. We have to wrestle with who we are and what we are according to scripture. Where do I fall short according to scripture? Where do I miss the mark according to scripture? Where am I off? But the problem in today's culture, and especially even in the church, is that they take that phrase and they leave off the last few words. They say always reforming, but they leave off according to the scriptures. I'm always reforming instead of the scriptures according to the culture. We need to change according to the culture. That, they say we're in a deconstruction and we're going to reform. A deconstruction is fine 
if you're doing it according to scriptures. As a matter of fact, we should just call it a reformation instead of a deconstruction. But when we look at this, we hear these words. When we go by culture, and there's all this confusion, that confusion causes what it says next in verse 11. For when there are many words, they increase utility. What is the advantage for mankind? How many times do we walk into a conversation and we actually leave more confused than we did when we got there? Because we just talk so much and we don't listen. And, and we have all these ideas. But I'm pretty sure that, that's, that's the point of social media nowadays. I'm pretty sure that's not how it started, but that's where it is now. I mean, think about the... I'm going to use a word here and don't think I'm crazy or some sort of conspiracy theorist, but I think social media is just a bunch of untrue propaganda that floats out there trying to destroy the truth. Trying to at least undermine the truth just enough to cause you to question and try and reform according to culture instead of according to the scriptures. Because a lot of times there's what we call clickbait. You probably know what that is. It's just the title of an article. And instead of taking time to actually read it and understand it, we go, oh, that must be the truth. You know why Jesus called us sheep? Because we're sheep. That's why he called us sheep. Because sheep follow blindly too often. And, and that's where we find ourselves in all of this. We don't do the research, but instead we buy the hype. Maybe we should go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. That first thing, I, I use a, a, a bit of a strong term. As a matter of fact, somebody said, man, when you did Ecclesiastes 5, you're like, shut your mouth and listen. He's like, I thought you were my dad. You know, that, that, that guy, I'm like, sorry, I, that wasn't how I was supposed to come across. I just got really intense. I am a dad after all. So um, we do though. Sometimes we just need to listen to God and his word. We need to stop trying to tell him to change it because he knows. As a matter of fact, that's questions in, number two, in verse 12. For who knows what is good for anyone in life? In the few days of his futile life that he spends like a shadow. The answer in the world is nobody. Nobody knows. But for us who are not in this world, God does. God knows. God knows what is good for anyone in this life. He knows what is good for me in my, in my life. That's why it's called His will and not mine. He is directing my path. And as it says, the one who does the will of God abides forever. And the second part of that question, is our, our second part of that verse is our last question. Who can tell anyone what will happen after him under the sun? Under the sun? What's going to happen after all this is done? You know what anybody can say? In this world, under the sun? Nobody has the answer to that. Nobody has the answer. But again, for us, those who are not a part of this world, God does. He knows what's going to happen next. And the beautiful thing is, is God is gracious enough to give us enough Info to encourage us, but not too much info to overwhelm us. Not too much info that won't be for our own good. But here's the thing. What we do know for sure is this. This life is not it. This life is not the end. Death is coming, and we better make sure that we're using the most of our present opportunities. These are things that we know. This is one of the major themes we see throughout the book. See, in all of this, in all of what Solomon's saying, he's not saying it's wrong to work or that eating good food is wrong or that dreaming is wrong or being rich is wrong or being smart is wrong. What he is saying is this, if we're doing it for the wrong purpose, then it's wrong. 
If we're driven for the wrong desire, then it's wrong. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about God and His glory. If we understand the purpose of it all, that, that Westminster Catechism that I've shared multiple times, it says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is where we find our satisfaction. Jesus is life. That is where we find our good life and that is where we find all that we desire. In Him we find the satisfaction that we look for in everything else. My challenge to you today is this. If you're looking at other places, turn to Jesus. If you're already focused on Jesus, pray that God keeps you there and continue to grow in Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for who You are again. And thank You for the way You've continued to speak to us to a book, or through a book that's, that's all about futility. Because God, the, the truth of the matter is, it, it, doesn't sound, it doesn't sound great when it's coming from a man's perspective. Why we do anything that we're doing. Why we have anything that we have. Why we even bother. But God, when you are our focus, when you are our life, it changes everything. It changes why we live, it changes how we live, and it changes who we live for. God, there may be some people in here that are struggling with that right now. Trying to live out the ways of the world, trying to find that good life and the stuff that is out there. And God, I pray that, that you help them see it far before they crash into that truth of the lighthouse. But that's not where we find it. That we alter our course. That we alter our course to follow and abide in that truth. To live in your son, Jesus Christ. And that God, it changes not only our life, but it changes the life we live on the outside. And as it changes the life we live on the outside, it changes the world that we live in for your glory and your honor to grow your kingdom. We pray it all in your name, Lord. Amen.